0: So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, December the 16th. Christmas is sneaking up on us. This is episode number 188 of backyard beekeeping questions and answers. My name is Frederick Dunn and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. How cold is it outside? 35 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not bad considering what a lot of people are dealing with right now. What's that in Celsius? 2 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity is 88%. It's going to get a lot higher because it's going to start raining and then big snowstorm swooping in so i hope everyone's hives are sealed up ready to go insulated weighted strapped whatever you need to do if you're around here because right now the wind velocity is only five miles an hour not bad but we're going to get some wind gusts storms are coming so if you want to know what we're going to talk about today please look down in the video description below and you'll see all the topics listed with any related informational links and uh, stuff like that. So you can learn more. How do you submit your question for consideration? You go to thewaytobe.org and you fill out uh, the form that's on the page, also titled thewaytobe.org. So that's pretty straightforward. And uh, thanks for being here, spending your time. And all these questions were submitted within the past week some as recent as yesterday or this very day this morning you can also listen to this you don't have to watch it on youtube you can listen to it as podcast on podbean titled the way to be another thing by the way more than 60 percent of my viewers are not subscribers so if you don't have a youtube channel it would be awesome if you made one just so you can subscribe to your favorite youtubers and give them thumbs up or maybe thumbs down if you don't like what's going on but it really gives you an opportunity to make comments on the videos, and there's over 900 of them on my uh, YouTube homepage, which is Frederick Dunn. So let's get started. The first question, number one, comes from Branded from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hello, Fred. I'm checking my inventory and seeing what I need to order for spring, and I had a question: Do the bees take to waxed foundation? Premier is what I'll buy that has been stored for a while slower than freshly ordered foundation. So I'm guessing you're wondering if you should put off ordering the foundation so the wax coating on the plastic foundation will be fresher when you get it. Uh, I don't think the bees care much either way. It all smells like uh, wax foundation. What really is important is that if you get uh, wax foundation on plastic that you want a nice heavy coat of wax beeswax preferred not something else beeswax so heavy coating of beeswax and get this the heavier the coating the more the bees will use it and the less they have to produce to get things going so the other thing is when we look at beeswax sometimes when it looks old and this can even be capped honey that's in a hive that died over winter or something like that you see kind of a hazy finish on it that is called the bloom so, and this happens on uh, old candles and things like that. In fact, it's one of the ways you know it's actually beeswax because that doesn't happen on paraffin. So when you see that, something you might do to freshen it up, hot water, rinse, or you can just take a hair dryer, not heat it enough to melt the wax, but you'll see the bloom go away. You'll see it turn to that nice clear wax color again, and then you stop eating it. So as far as, you know, should you order now or wait till spring, I don't see a difference. In fact, if they're on sale right now, definitely take advantage of these holiday period sales that everyone seems to be having, and I think your bees are going to use them just fine. We put Premier out along with Acorn. Last year, they sat right in here. I was looking to see if I have a stack of them. And they sat here through the winter, and the bees took to them just the same as uh, all the other bees wax-coated foundation. So, I don't see much of a difference. Go ahead, get them now if you can save money. So that's question one. Question number two comes from Jennifer, Amherst, Massachusetts. Hi Fred, I just contacted Better B about purchasing the Nuke boxes that you have with the fixed bottom board and the hole for the front entrance. But I was told the carpenter that manufactured those passed away very sad i guess i'll buy the other fully assembled nuke setup up from them because i cannot build one myself unfortunately and so i thought what they don't sell the my favorite nucleus hive box anymore and i looked it up for those of you who don't know this is highly repetitive because we show it almost every single this is it the whole solid bottom board because if you're transporting a nuke this is already attached you don't have to strap it shut you just need to put the lid on and you're transporting your nucleus hive i like these a lot also if a big winter storm comes like we have coming now if heaven forbid your nucleus hives blow off their stand and if they're really tall it's possible and they're strapped together the bottom board is, stays right in place and doesn't move around so i checked better be i looked at not only that It's not on their website anymore and uh, I'm glad I stockpiled mine and they're um, also not in the new catalog that they just put out so that's the catalog from Better Bee that has the hive tool cutting into the honey on the front of it Um, they're not in there so darn it but that led me to something the cover image for today because I thought this is prime time Uh, for me to talk about the kind of nucleus hive setup that I would prefer if I could have my dream hive when it comes to a nucleus. Now, you're going to hear lots of discussions from backyard beekeepers, some want a three frame nucleus hive, some want a two frame nucleus hive, some want a six frame nucleus hive, some want medium, some want deeps. And so here's an area where if you're a new beekeeper, I apologize in advance because Everybody has different ideas as to what to use. So I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to use and what I've been using for the last couple of years. And it gets them through winter. Fantastic. And I want to tell you this too. I am fast shifting to, um, I use my nucleus hives as resource hives over the last couple of years. And it's been a huge bonus for that. And because I use the deeps, by the way, don't use the, I don't personally use the mediums. I use the deep Langstraw standard frame designed nucleus boxes. I also only use the ones that are made out of solid wood. I don't like the plastic ones or, and I know that there are polystyrene versions and things like that. The wooden ones are what I'm using. Again, many options. And I'm starting to think more and more, I'm actually given their survivability in winter. Given their efficient use of that space, I am going to be having a bank of five frame nucleus hives and supering those and treating them just like a regular beehive. And the most standardly produced Langstroth style hives are going to be the eight frame or the 10 frame hives. And I have those. But the nukes are really, really good. So I was just talking with Ross, by the way, and when when I say talking, I mean messaging back and forth. For those of you who don't know, you can go to my website, which is thewaytobe.org, and you can look at uh, the prints, the drawings, and they are free. So you can download the PDF, you can print them out, you can use them in your wood shop, for those of you who make your own stuff. So we're going to probably be putting out a Nucleus Hive configuration that has all the bells and whistles. And uh, that's what these drawings are about. So the first drawing that I put up, this is my dream nucleus hive. And this is for year-round use. Treat it like a regular beehive, not just an emergency resource. So anyway, look what it has on the bottom. So let's say that they no longer make that. And by the way, I don't know who the person was it better be that was making those. It kind of explains the reason why the supers uh, don't match the Bottom box with the bottom board attached to it. They were a little bit different And now we know that's because one person was making them and I'm very sorry uh, for your loss if you know that individual and He did a great job So here's the thing I would like to have so now we've just got the box with no bottom attached to it It's got the and I'd like the entrance hole to be one inch in diameter and that's just an inch or so off the bottom. And then we have the control wheel, which they still sell for any nucleus hive that you want. And look what it sits on now, though. I want to make these bottom boards detachable, not permanent on the, the box. So we want these boxes to be completely interchangeable with the exception of one of them will have the entrance hole on it. And uh, I want a two inch or even more bottom screen board. Now I know they already offer that. Somebody's probably looking at this going, Fred, Better B be sells a screen bottom board. They do, but it's not like this. My screen bottom board, I want it to be completely closed up. In other words, I want it to be a two to three inch deep shim. I want it to have a solid bottom board as part of it. So then this cavity here has the top portion. It has stainless steel screen. And then from the back of the hive i want to be able to flip open the back hinge however you want to do it magnets to hold it in place whatever and i want to be able to pull a tray out so on a stainless steel number eight stainless steel screen then i set my main brood box on top of that then above that we just have a solid piece of wood to act as the inner cover and that's going to have a hole in the middle of it and then above that a two inch shim And then above that because now this is a feeder shim and when it's not in use as a feeder shim you just cover the hole with a little block of three quarter inch thick wood so you don't leave a hole open in there because we don't want the bees to wander up into the shim so we've got this two inch shim up here and now this overlay that we've already been using for a long time the dimensions are not critical but this is r10 which means it's two inch thick rigid foam board insulation and by the way, it's pretty darn UV stable, but you can paint it with exterior latex paint or something like that. And then that will encapsulate the top, which includes the inner cover now, which is just a solid piece of wood with a hole drilled in the middle of it. This is very simple to build if you have basic carpentry skills. And then a the two inch shim to create a spacer around that, and then it sits on that. And on top of that, just to close up those edges so there's no airflow up in there, if you make your uh rigid foam board cap a little too large if you put just a cover of double bubble over that then it acts as a placeholder and just leave it right down in there so that is what i want enclosed what would that look like from the side you might be wondering oh so here's another drawing so here we go from the side and i want you to know see we have this hinge on the back so that can flip down And this tray could even be a segment of a tray. We know that they're widely available. We all go to cafeterias. We have been when we were kids and stuff. Maybe you go to, you know, the Corral or whatever the stores are. For those of you who go out in public where people actually are, you eat at restaurants, sometimes they have those trays and stuff. I think you could get those and cut them uh, to match. So then you have that lip so you can slide them in there. I don't think you have to... Get one custom fit just for this i think you get a longer one and cut it down to fit in here anyway the entrance is on this side noted with the bees flying this shows the number eight stainless steel screen which goes right across the top and why have the screen there anyway why bother putting an enclosure underneath your hive and this would work also for your standard langstroth brood boxes as well we just happen to be talking about the nukes, which I'm going to be leaning strongly towards as a backyard beekeeper. The uh, Varroa destructor mites fall through that uh, screen, and you might be saying, "Huh." So does that does that help control the mites? Well, if you listen to Dr. Jamie Ellis at University of Florida, who is a mite expert by far, he said that they noted a 15% mite load reduction in hives that had screened bottom boards. Now, that's why there's bottom boards that are screened, they're available all over the place, but usually they're screened and then it's open to the outside right there, or you have a core flute insert underneath of it and then so that becomes your pest management board that you can spray with a cooking spray like Pam or something so little Varroa destructor mites get down there check in but they don't check out kind of thing so I call this little tray down here the Varroa mite Valley of the dead because they're going to fall through the screen when the bees groom them off because it's one of the things that some of the bees are doing really well they're grooming the mites off they're not mauling the mites the way the Purdue ankle biters do So the Varroa destructor mites are falling off the bees from grooming, but they're just scooting right along the bottom, right up the sidewall, back onto another bee. So the problem continues. Therefore, integrated pest management, you see a lot, IPM. Uh, This is part of that. So another IPM would be drone comb that people use to pull it out before, of course, your, before your drones hatch along with a bunch of new Varroa mites. So these are all parts, but that number stuck when I was listening to Dr. Ellis. 15 percent mite reduction that's passive mite reduction i like it so have an enclosed bottom board with a removable tray so we can pull it out and look to see all the dead mites and celebrate our achievement and then of course this is shown with a single box and then that two inch rigid foam board insulation which you can get at lowe's home depot all your building centers sell it in four by eight sheets and they're already they're pre-scored so you can snap them they're easy to cut glue them together with expansion foam, and you're good to go, and then paint them up. And then that, of course, allows you, once they fill four out of five of those frames, and they do it pretty darn quick, by the way, swarm season's coming. So, I know, it's, you know, it's still December, but we plan ahead. You got to have the equipment, because if you're like me, all your equipment's engaged, involved, used. And then there's a swarm, you have no box to put them in. So, I recommend setting these up ahead of time and if you've got kids that have to do maybe you've got boy scouts that have to do uh eagle scout projects and stuff like that what better eagle scout project than have them do something that helps pollinators and then they could help you build and you draw the sketches out they go build it and then they get to put that and then their board approves that they get their eagle scout badge and they're good to go but uh Is there another drawing? Sure, what would that look like finished? Here it is. So here it is on the stand. This would be an example of the configuration. Of course, whatever stand you like to use, you can build your own. Here is the integrated pest management, totally enclosed wooden bottom board with a removable tray, number eight stainless steel screen above that. And then of course, your five frame deep Langstroth style nucleus box sitting on top of that. Control wheel on the front, one inch diameter hole up off the bottom so that If bees die in winter they don't plug the hole and then up here what do we have the second box the super and then we have of course the insulated cover over top of that and uh, we have a couple of bricks on there to keep your hive from blowing over that's what i want that's what i'm going to build i just happen to have some red oak sitting in a stack in my garage and it's going to be ugly but It doesn't have to look good it only has to be functional and it only has to be dimensionally accurate enough to accommodate those langstroth deep frames and you get the frame and you use that as your template to work from because if you're building this stuff all it has to do is match equipment that you're building so and of course uh, as jennifer says here can't build them herself you know We all need to make friends with carpenters or get some carpentry skills. These are very basic things to do because another thing I looked at now I like better that is a good company. But you know, when I looked at those today online, $69 for just one, uh, nucleus box of course that includes the telescoping outer cover which is a more expensive cover design which i don't use on my nukes and uh it had the detached bottom board so the reversible bottom board it's called and it has the inserts they also have the options for screen bottom boards but they are not the enclosed type that i'm describing here things are expensive right now i don't have to uh beat that horse to death because we all know everything is just exponentially gone up for some reason. So if you can get your own wood, saw it, glue it, nail it, clamp it, put it together and somewhat closely match the space you need. Of course, your best um, template is to buy one, get all your dimensions from that and then work your way through it. Question number three is about slatted racks from Joe Elam. Just watch your number six FAQ and it appears that your views have changed on the slatted racks usage. I seem to remember that you are currently using them, correct? If so, what are your thoughts on them now? I'm preparing to build some for my spring beehives in the South. I'm thinking it will help when the hot days of summer come. Slatted racks are optional. They're not critical to your beehive configuration. And that's probably what uh, Joe is referring to. You don't have to have a slatter rack, but there is an aspect of utility to having them slatter racks. This comes up all the time. Here's one right here. We show it almost every single Q and a, and this one, look, it has drone comb underneath. So for those of you like to harvest, um, drones and beeswax, having drone comb underneath the slatter rack, but all the hives did not do that. That one was kind of unique. Uh, one of the reasons that I like them too is because I drill this quarter-inch hole in the back right between the slats. See where that screw is right there? That's because this is where I run my Exelic Acid tube. If you've got the uh, ProVap or any of the you know, Laura B's version or if you've got the Instant, Vap, Instant Vape, however you want to pronounce it, um, then you can treat with oxalic acid vaporization through there. The other thing is if you're using the pans what does a slider rack do? It gives you a spacer between the bottom of your frames where your brood is and the pan that's delivering the oxalic acid for sublimation. So it has utility in that regard. The other thing is if you're ever shaking a recently caught swarm of bees into a deep brood box and you've got a slatted rack at the bottom guess where the bees go they all go right down into the slatted rack area and then that lets you put all your frames in right away instead of just leaving space and waiting and coming back later you do it all in one fell swoop so the other thing is it gives bees a place to a place to be out of the weather and away from the other bees that are trying to cool the hive or feed the brood or do things like that especially on hot humid days when your bees are bearding outside some people say that they eliminate bearding by having slatted racks on their hives because of that extra space for me. And my observations here in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, it has not eliminated bearding. It may reduce it some because that space is certainly full of bees, but I still get bees bearding on the front. And where do the bees beard when they're outside on the front of the hive? If you've got a, an extended cover up there, they like to go up against the cover. But if you have a hive visor, front of the hive, hive visor sticks out they all cluster up under there that protects them from sun if we get a rainstorm overnight they'll cluster up under there so there are a lot of practical aspects to adding space to your hive now the reason you don't see them all over the place by the thousands when it comes to commercial beekeeping added piece of optional equipment that uh, probably is very expensive now to buy if you're not making your own And uh, you could do without them, but they do have uh, utilitarian benefits. So that's why I have them on just about all of my Langstroth style hives. I even put them on the flow hives. So yeah, if I was saying back then, you know, this was episode number six, then uh yeah I was probably saying they're optional not necessary and they're still not necessary but they do have benefits so if you want them and you can afford them and you don't mind the extra equipment get them question number four off-grid by design hey Fred I thought about something you said about oxalic acid and cold weather I know you do not insulate your hives but it seems there is one possible advantage and that is the B cluster are not as tight in an insulated hive allowing more effective oxalic acid treatment in cold weather what are your thoughts on this so uh different yeah it's true that i don't insulate the sidewalls of my hives although i do have some insulated hives the lands hives for example they just come that way i insulate the top so for those of you are wondering does he insulate anything yes the inner covers have the bsmart designs insulated inner covers no longer just the wooden inner covers with the exception of the nucleus hives that i described before but they've got an insulated cap over the top uh, the sidewalls are not insulated and the problem is of course we're talking about oxalic acid vaporization vaporization needs to stay vapor for as long as possible so it can move throughout the, the hive interior when you deliver it so cold weather can impact the delivery equipment that you're using as well. So you have to be aware of the rapid rise and fall of temperature and the demand on the equipment that you're trying to use. So the other part of that is if it's above 60 degrees Fahrenheit on the outside, uh, the bees are not clustered tightly, which means now all the space around your bees, including the critical area, which is on the brood, can now have that fine dust of oxalic acid crystals settle on those surfaces. And that's how it needs to work to be effective. So then the question here is, well, what if it's cold outside but we're insulated on the inside and the bees break their cluster? My question would be, how do we know that they broke cluster? And uh, it's true that they could have a a more expanded heat bubble in there, especially assuming that you're not venting through the top of that hive and it's insulated and the cluster is of decent size. If they're warm enough, it's a loose cluster, which is still a benefit. Or if they break cluster completely, then yeah, you could treat. But my question would be, how do you know for sure that they have broken their cluster? So the time has kind of passed here because the other thing that's in partnership with that is, it's not just that the bees are clustered or not clustered. We're trying to treat at a time when the brood is at the smallest possible number on the frame. So if we don't have capped brood, which has pretty much gone by for us here. It started early this year. They went without brood, and uh, now they're actually starting to produce brood again. So this is an interesting time. And so we've kind of lost the most effective time to treat with oxalic acid vaporization where I live. So wherever off-grid by design is located, maybe um, you'll still have an opportunity to be in a broodless or low brood period Where you can treat with oxalic acid and get better efficacy and efficacy is just a fancy word for the amount of varroa destructor mites that actually can get so we want to get them in their dispersal phase which used to be phoretic so now it's dispersal phase and uh that's when you get those mites get it on them and kill them but uh yeah they're moving somebody else wrote and said they would they wanted to put a heating blanket one of those electric heating blankets on the outside of their hive and uh, to warm it up so that they would break clusters, so they could do an oxalic acid treatment. And I say the same thing to that. Um, Really, it matters what the brood is at. And of course, these are final treatments, usually a single treatment in winter, because hopefully, and I realize, you know, that uh, ship has sailed, but Earlier in the year is when we want to know the mite loads and when we want to get them under control and we want to do it well in advance of this time of year when they're clustering because we need our bees to be healthy in winter. You know, We need our bees to be healthy all the time, but it's more critical when we're depending on these fat-bodied winter bees that can live for months instead of weeks. So, um, getting your, that doesn't mean, you know, don't take an opportunity to treat for mites if you have them, but it means that your, your real opportunity to clear up those mites and get them under control and get them to the smallest numbers possible is back in August and September. So, but yeah, if, if they broke cluster, you're not wasting your time. Go ahead. Give it a try. Question number six comes from Daryl from Bangkok, Thailand. I have heard that toxins become dissolved in beeswax so I burned up the old brood comb that I was retiring. After this I heard a number of beekeepers saying that the oldest, blackest, dirtiest comb can be rendered into beautiful yellow wax. I understand how both of these statements can be true but I'm wondering if you would share your thoughts about rendering old brood comb, brood comb. Okay, well i'm one of those people that i try to melt down all the wax that i can find no matter where it comes from however it is true so we'll reinforce that uh agricultural residue even beekeepers in fact one of the number one toxins that's found uh bonded into your beeswax especially in the brood area where it gets dark or any of your really old comb that's really dark it gets very fibrous too so that's why people don't want to render it generally because you end up with a whole bunch of muck stuck on whatever filtering system you're using most people heat it up get it you know until it's melted and then they pour it through an old cotton t-shirt or an old sweatshirt and if your sweatshirt has of course the cottony surface on it like a downy surface that surface would be up and the smooth surface would be on the underside so when you pour your wax through it it doesn't collect a bunch of that those uh, fibers and particles and take it into your nice clean final wax that you have so i do have some thoughts about that and when people have set out uh, beeswax for testing to see what the pesticide load is and by pesticide i'm talking herbicides fun- fungicides insecticides that all builds up and gets stored and built into the comb and i just um watched a talk that was hosted by uh, the Bee Informed Partnership and they had experts on from Cornell and other places that were talking about these concentrations. And this is kind of where we get into it. Here's another area where you can have beekeepers, commercial and backyard beekeepers, commercial people. I understand they want to keep their resources as much as possible and I've heard commercial beekeepers say they keep their comb for 11 years, maybe even longer and uh so the the concern is that that's toxic comb and so they say they might look at their bees and think wow my bees are doing okay i still see bees flying they still have brood and so it also does away with the idea that uh, with each emergence of a bee from a pupa cell that of course they're leaving behind some residue they're leaving behind a very thin cocoon And that's what makes it so tough and papery and and difficult to work with. When you go to scrape it off the frame, if you've got foundation or something, Um, then what happens is you go to render that and it didn't, it didn't reduce their ability to produce brood in a frame that was still very old, but it's these concentrations of toxins in the frame, in the beeswax that can have a sub lethal effect on your bees. So just because you still see brood emerging from those cells and just because you still have a population of bees and it's very tough comb, it's very durable comb and so therefore if you're commercial and you're rough on your equipment or whatever and you're having to hammer through everything that stuff is going to hold up really well and I understand the resistance to have them build new comb. But uh, your bees performance could actually be reduced by old comb that is full of toxins that may negatively impact your bees so for me i rotate the comb out on a fifth year so 20 percent of the comb starting on the fifth year and then i take just whatever the darkest and oldest comb is and i swap that out put the new comb on the outside push the older brood comb to the middle of course and then uh, rotate that way now um Then when you go to render it you just end up with a a whole bunch of sludge so that's the other end of it what are you going to do with the wax that you render from the oldest darkest bee comb even once you heat it up successfully and then you run it through some kind of filter system and you do get nice yellow wax out of it i highly recommend that you not cycle that back to your bees as coating on other foundation but rather that's the wax that you would take to make candles or, you know, other uses for people that would not later be recycled back to the hive, which is almost like pre-loading them. And you might be wondering, well, doesn't the heating of the wax, for example, wipe out the toxins that are in it? No, it doesn't. And in fact, uh, that stuff can live for decades or more in beeswax. So, and if you wanna know more, I highly recommend you go to the website, Bee Informed Partnership. And it may be called beeinformed.org. You could just Google it and go right to them. And they've got very good uh, information on beeswax and toxins and industrial chemicals used by agriculture as well as beekeepers, kumafoss, and things like that showing up in the comb. So it depends on you know, whether, and the reason I bring it up is, do you really want to mess with the comb that's going to have uh, all this debris in it and then that's also going to be the comb that you're going to want to use for candles or molding or you know some other use like i take beeswax and rub it on the threads of uh screws and stuff like that too so there are other uses aside from sending the beeswax back to your bees but yeah you could render it it's a lot of work and uh, even when you use a power washer and i have a power washer that'll cut wood if you put it on the like i think it's the black tip that's the strongest it actually will etch into wood so you can get anything off of plastic with that and so you are saving your plastic foundation from the landfill if you do it so kind of a fan of that question number seven comes from choline 77 says here being that a hive is plastic could it get too hot in the hive And this is related to the May Ergo Hive uh, video that I did. And they are plastic and they're sandwiched uh, polystyrene in the middle. So the question about it getting hot on the inside, uh, that's based on the configuration, by the way, and how much insulation there is. So if that were solid plastic without expanded foam polystyrene in it, because if you look at the polystyrene and we've all seen it at different levels, It is 98% air, so mostly air that provides that insulation uh, value for the hive. So on the inside it would be not necessarily hotter because it's plastic. It happens to uh, be associated with whatever the configuration is, how hot it's going to be in the inside. But that's an insulated hive, and they're vented through the top. And uh, so I don't think being plastic by itself is enough. The exterior surfaces let's if you made a comparison the big concern is that plastic would destabilize under high heat so why when you get in somebody's car that has a lot of plastic in the dash components and stuff like that it's in the summertime it's really hot you get in the car you smell the plastic ask yourself how you're smelling that you're smelling it because it's got particles being released in the air while it's super hot get into the same car in the winter time when the plastic is cold And you don't smell it so super hot plastic i would keep an eye on most of the hives uh, that come from reputable companies that are using plastics in or on them or as part of them it would be a food grade plastic so hopefully it's really stable and the exterior portions would be uv stable so this was a question on the apame hive Uh, they claim that they are uv stable on the outside this is only my first winter with them so we'll be looking at that but there's enough people keeping them that say that that's not a problem so insulation value wise not a problem i know i probably gave a longer answer than i needed to there's some interesting um kind of consumer information channels that you can search google for how hot do surfaces get in the sun and uh, beehive components Uh, so beehives that have the standard telescoping wooden cover with the metal clad top on it, can get 130 degrees or higher on that metal cover. You can't put your hand on that. So um, any material can get hot. The question is what happens to it when it does get hot, and then when it comes to the bees, how much of that heat is migrating into the interior of the hive, which is what we're really trying to shelter them from the heat and the cold equally so. For Apomay though, I don't consider it a risk to the bees. Question number eight comes from uh, the great stm8m8. These are YouTube names for the comment that was made. Sometime back you said that uh, small and tall is a good configuration for bees. So here's the thing during this past week I've had more questions related to nucleus hive configurations than ever before And here's another one. So you said small and tall is a good configuration for bees, 5 frame nukes, 5 frame deep or medium hives is enough to get through winter. I was thinking for those not vested in extraction equipment, how to add a flow hive super. So here's the thing. They do produce honey really fast. They do work really fast. That whole top section of the five over five configuration is really warm. And when we go to the third one, they were wall to wall honey. So I was rotating out because it's a resource hive, pulling out capped frames of honey to boost frames that we just installed swarms in and things like that. So in those hives and we'd pull an undrawn comb frame. So we use them to draw new comb and stuff in that top box. You could, in theory, of course, configure it for flow frames. So you could have a 10 frame, so that's five over five deeps. And then when those are full and you go to that third one, third box, you could configure that box and put, I would say, three uh, flow frames in there to see if they would finish them off quickly. And there is a flow hive hybrid that if you go to honeyflow.com, They're very good at sharing their specs their dimensions. And if you wanted to make your own boxes, they share all those dimensions. And so you could actually convert a five frame nuclear wooden box if you're building your own again, because they don't fit standard. You know, they're not the standard length. They don't the way they sit on the rabbit joint. It has to be built for or cut away to accommodate those. But uh, I can see that as viable for uh, Flow Super only. If you don't want to buy a whole Flow Hive, you just get those. And the reason I say put it in threes is because they only sell the boxes in sixes or sevens because that's the standard size for the flow supers. So if you bought one of their six, uh, flow frame boxes, then you have two sets of three and you could, you could even rotate them out. But I see that as something worth trying. And I've thought of that myself. I just haven't gotten around to trying it, but, uh, you could put flow frames up there and see how it goes you'd be the first to do it that i've heard of i'm sure somebody else who's handy may have already tried that um i had another question that i feel like i skipped over because i prepared for it because i'm at the end already let's go just contact a better bee I already did that slatted racks salic acid insulate your hives here it is question number five did i skip that i'm starting in the spring with two nuke colonies i don't really want to run too deeps for brood but i also don't don't want them to swarm more aggressively than they might otherwise in this video this was uh, you referenced uh, dr thomas seeley saying He had researched the subject of hive configurations and which book can I find that information in? Thanks, uh, for, for keeping up with the great videos. Well, Dr. Tom Seeley, and I'm highly influenced by him, of course, he did uh, Darwinian beekeeping. So you can actually, his lecture is very popular, a lot of bee clubs, bee organizations have hired uh, Dr. Seely to talk about Darwinian beekeeping and give uh, YouTube presentations. So if you Google that on YouTube or YouTube search it, you're going to find that lecture. But if you want to find it in a book, this is the book where he really gets into the details on that. And for those of you who are just listening, it's called The Lives of Bees by Dr. Thomas Seely, And I believe it came out in 2019. And, uh, Darwinian beekeeping starts on page 277. And, uh, that's where I get a lot of my ideas about using, um, smaller hives. In fact, it's uh, influenced how I set up my hives going into winter. And also now, here's the thing you need to really listen to his presentation from start to finish. Or this is a great book, by the way, not just the Darwinian beekeeping aspects, but you'll learn a lot about honeybee behavior and the biology of the honeybee. And he has a quote in here at the beginning of chapter 11, which is by Leslie Bailey from Honeybee Pathology, 1981. It says that beekeeping today is still as it has always been, the exploitation of colonies of a wild insect. The best beekeeping is the ability to exploit them and at the same time, to interfere as little as possible with their natural propensities. So that kind of is the basis of Darwinian beekeeping. Other people will jump on that and and say, hey, then that means like if the bees just aren't doing good and we don't treat because it is a, a kind of, it's a treatment free method of beekeeping, but you can't just pick little bits and pieces out of that and say, well, I'm just not gonna treat my bees then. And because then at the end of it, you have to pay attention to the fact that Dr. Seely says if you have a colony that is not holding its own with a Varroa destructor mite, you have to practice euthanization to eliminate those genetics and prevent what's known as a mite bomb from occurring, which can topple even strong colonies that otherwise would have made it on their own so it's very important that you know we take the time to listen to the entire presentations get the whole picture uh, before we kind of jump and uh, decide our own philosophies so i'm glad i found that and then so number eight so we're in the fluff section by the way that was the last uh, you know a lot of the questions this week were repetitive and if you submitted a question or a topic and i didn't cover it today uh you can go to the website uh, you can go to my YouTube channel and you'll see that there's a little, when you click on videos and it'll list all the videos and who has time to go through all the videos. And there's a little search magnifying glass there. And if you type in the topic that you're looking for, walkaway splits, hive inspections, lands, whatever kind of hive, or the information that you're looking for, type that in there and then you'll see a group of videos that may address what you're interested in. And I know that this time of year it's super boring because here I sit at a desk um, talking to you about bees instead of showing you the bees. So it's, uh, yeah, I'd rather be out there with bees too. And that's where people that live in the South have a huge advantage. And that's because even this time of year, they're often still working their bees. And likewise, spring comes early down there. And we're still sitting here watching the snow. So you can find a lot of content uh, there. You can also go to the website thewaytobe.org, and there's a lot of pages there that uh, have other information that might help you out. So I am going to try to make videos, but uh, today I want to talk to you about some of the things I'm doing to make winter go by quicker. And uh, one of the things I want to really enhance is, you know, I've been, I plant acres of land every year uh, with plants that are good for my bees. So I end up in it and it works it comes up you know I get out there with a tractor and I till and every time I do that you know people are like oh you're tilling the soil you're damaging the soil structure and all the microbiology that's going on there and you're you're just killing everything to grow a few flowers. Well I have to to get those things going because I have a lot of competition from the weeds and stuff that are out there. So one of the things that I'm doing this year though is. There's a company called Eden Brothers. This is not sponsored, by the way, at all. Eden Brothers, and that's where I went to get hyssop seeds. So it's H-Y-S-S-O-P. And then when you get it though, now this bag of seeds costs $45 or something like that. Yeah, it's expensive. But look at how many seeds you get. There are probably hundreds of thousands of seeds in there. So, what on earth do I get that for? Well, because I again, you know, I read books and, and I look up stuff, and of course, the Xerxes Society has all these pollinator plant ratings, and they said that the hyssop plants do so well, and, it, and it's true. So, then I feel like I wanted to start planting hyssop 10 years ago instead of now, but now I have it, and for fun in the wintertime, because I have a quarter pound of hyssop seeds. So I can plant an acre of this, no problem, but I want it to take root. I want it to be effective. And then it's uh, it's a perennial, which means it's supposed to come up on its own. But another thing that we depend on with these different hyssop lines is that they seed themselves. So they have to produce seed, seed themselves. And then so not only are they reproducing from the root that's left because it dies back, everything turns brown uh, in the winter time, And then, of course, you'll see little green leaves at the root starting in spring so then they'll start to spread but they don't spread too fast so if you want to get an acre or a quarter acre of these and uh i don't actually it just seems unbelievable the the glowing review that you get from the xerxes society on hyssop giant hyssop specifically and uh they said that it was reported that 100 colonies of bees could be supported on an acre of hyssop. Now, eh, I don't know. That just may be in a perfect environment with perfect rainfall and perfect sun and everything else. And a hyssop plant every 10 inches over an entire acre, high density, perfect grow year. Maybe that could happen. But I'm only trying to sustain 20 colonies or 23 colonies, whatever there are. And so if I can get a whole bunch of these out there, I will um, make a big impact on my nectar flow. So if I can get an acre of them going or if I can get a uh, even more than that or even just a quarter acre, every little bit's going to help. But here's what I did for fun and what I'm doing this winter. I take these little sandwich bags and I got uh, paper towels and I made the paper towel damp so I wrung it out. And I found out you want that paper towel to be wet everywhere. And uh, if you look at the packet, uh, days to germination, it will tell you that germination can take one to two weeks. That is keep areas moist until germinate occurs up to 21 days away. This happened in just a few days. So it germinated, it also turned out, by the way, these are the ones I didn't use. So these already have, it's less than a week, these already have tails on them, they've got the green, so their primary leaves are starting. And then I take tweezers and I take these out and I put them each in little starter pods, because I have a uh, geodome it's called, and I have 80 of these planted. So let's let's do the math. If you buy you know, a quart pot of these, even smaller as a perennial from the garden center, you're paying from 10 to $18 per plant. I have 80 of them, that's over $800 worth if I had to buy these perennials and go out and plant them. And they do transfer really easily, really well. So if you need immediate satisfaction and you have fat stacks and you're thinking that your wallet's too thick and it's gonna hurt your back by making you sit crooked, you need to unload some of that cash then yes, go buy the perennials, put them in the ground, and they're taken off right away. Because last year when I brought them home from the garden center, honeybees flew to the pots and were on the plants before I could even get them to the spot where I wanted to plant them. So I'm a believer the hyssop is good, plus it's good for people. So it has a lot of great benefits. And so this winter what I'm doing is I'm just starting a whole bunch of hyssop plants. I have nothing to lose. Uh, because let's say they don't make it so my plan is of course i got them to this stage took the tweezers took them out and yes i'm making a video showing every stage but the video is not going to come out until they're already well flourishing and i know that the method that i'm using worked well and that we get them in the environment in spring so this is one of those videos that takes several months to complete Um, but right now it's looking good because i pulled these out put them in the pods have them in the um Biodome, it's called or whatever and i have 80 of them started and by the way the eden brothers uh, germination rate they said they rated this at 80 percent this is like nine out of ten actually germinated by putting the seed on a damp paper towel putting that paper towel inside a ziploc sandwich bag and laying it seed side down on the windowsill so it's only my house stays pretty cold in winter because we don't run the heater and uh, we have a fireplace and so on but uh, it was like 67 degrees on the windowsill and they germinated in a matter of days like it really happens fast so if you have short attention span seed germination that's the method where did i learn that method looking up seed germination on youtube because you want to know stuff go to youtube it says here planting depth is a quarter inch well anyway i just took the tweezers dropped them in there Long story short, this is a time of year where you can break the winter doldrums by finding some plant that you want to start indoors that you can later transplant in spring, and it gives you something to do, something fun. When you see things grow and change day by day, it uh, gets you outside of your head a little bit, and you're not just sitting around wondering if your bees are alive or dead, if they have enough food or not. And in closing, I want to remind you check your fondant, your sugar breaks, whatever you have. Make sure that your bees are doing well and that uh, they have everything that they need from you and keep those entrances clear. Uh let's see, I think that's about it for today. So I want to thank you for being here with me and for watching, and I hope that you learned something. And I look forward to seeing your questions and topic suggestions for next week as we go through the next week. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend.